You're listening to the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve. To the first episode of Napoleon 101. As far as I know, the first Napoleon podcast on the internet. Uh, my name is Cameron Riley. I'm the co-founder and managing director of the podcast network, and I've been a self-confessed Napoleon geek for the last 15 or 20 years. My role in this show is really just going to be the uh, question. I'm going to be the devil's advocate because I am fortunate enough to be joined by one of the world's leading Napoleonic authorities, David Markham. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about David. David is the Executive Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of the International Napoleonic Society, and he is the President of the Napoleonic Alliance. We'll get you to tell us a little bit later what those two institutions actually do. He has published articles in 20 journals, four websites, his work has appeared in five languages, and he's the author of Napoleon's Road to Glory, Napoleon for Dummies, several other important books on the subject. He's also appeared in several Napoleonic documentaries, and I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. So David, as you know, but for the benefit of the people listening in, the idea of this show is to take 15 episodes over the course of what's probably going to be close to 15 hours, in a, some sort of a linear and structured fashion, each episode covering a particular segment of Napoleon's career. And the idea being that people will be able to listen to them as we put them together, but also that they'll be available on the internet ever after as a package set that people can download and give them a, a fairly in-depth overview of who Napoleon was, what he did, what he tried to do, what he failed to do, what mistakes he made, which will hopefully be an entree, if they're interested in the subject matter, to go and read some of the very fine books that have been written by yourself and your colleagues over the years and maybe participate in some other educational opportunities around Napoleon. Would you say that's a summation of the goals here? Well, Cameron, I think not only is that a summation of the goals, but I, I want to also uh, say how very pleased I am that you've come up with this idea. I, I think of podcasting as being on the cutting edge of uh, communication, and to have Napoleon uh, one of the very first uh, opportunities for people to, to uh, uh, experience this cutting edge, and for me uh, in particular to be a part of that process, uh, is really quite an honor and, and something very special, and, and I want to thank you for having uh, made this all possible. Well, my pleasure, man. And I, quite honestly, I've spent the last year trying to think of what I could do uh, in the podcasting sense around Napoleon. So I remember about 18 months ago, I was at the uh, Institute Napoleon in Paris, and I got a tour of the place and was sort of talking about some of the 
funding that they do to encourage people around the world to you know, promote the memory of Napoleon. I remember leaving there that day and saying to my wife, yeah, one day I'd love to do something that helped you know, uh, increase the awareness of Napoleon out there. So perhaps this is my opportunity to contribute a little bit back to the Napoleonic uh, societies and all the hundreds of books that I've read over the last 15 or 20 years. So anyway, let's get into it. This show, I thought a, a good idea for the first show would maybe be to give a quick overview of Napoleon, to talk about some of the first questions that I often get asked when people find out that I'm slightly obsessed with Napoleon, and you know, maybe just give people a, an overview of why we're interested in him, how we got interested in him, some of our favourite anecdotes or myths, and then in the next episode we'll get stuck into the you know true background of Napoleon in an episodic fashion. So, the first question I wanted to ask you was, how and when did you first get interested in Napoleon? Well, I first got interested in Napoleon when I was a, a young child, and my father would tell me stories about Napoleon and, and, and various other people in history, uh, and Napoleon stuck. He, he would show me uh, pictures of uh, Les Invalides, the tomb where Napoleon is buried in Paris, and the Arc de Triomphe, and, and other Napoleonic sites, and, you know, it's really... Uh, uh, hard not to be fascinated with Napoleon. Indeed, uh, Napoleon uh, has uh, held people's fascination uh, since the very beginning. People were fascinated with Napoleon when he was alive. He he wasn't just another ruler or another leader. Uh, uh, people uh, during the Peace of Amiens in 1801 to 1803, for example, people from from England and, and all over Europe would would flock to Paris to to see uh, this amazing uh, man. Uh, he, he promoted that, of course. Uh, he, he saw to it that prints and bulletins were, were sent out, media blitzes, if you will, commemorative medallions of his, of his various victories. Uh, and that, that interest in Napoleon has, has lasted uh, for 200 years. Uh, there have been various resurgences uh, of interest in 1821. Uh, when he died, there was a, a whole bunch of interest in his life. In the 1830s, when King Louis-Philippe uh, took over, uh, he promoted the idea that he was the new Napoleon. Uh, in 1840, when Napoleon's ashes were returned uh, to, to uh, Paris, and then again in the 1850s, uh, when Napoleon III uh, took over, Napoleon's nephew. Now, of course, uh, since 1969 to the present, we have the, the bicentennial of, of everything that is Napoleon, and you, you, cannot, uh, you cannot escape him. As I tell my wife, he's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere except Paris, it would seem. Well, he, he's in Paris, too, after all. The, when you think about the Parisian landmarks, uh, the, the gold dome of Les Invalides, uh, where, where he's buried, the Arc de Triomphe is, is one of the two symbols of Paris, the, the Eiffel Tower, of course, being, being the other one. Uh, and, and also in things such as uh, furniture styles. Uh, whether you're in Paris or, or whether you're here in Olympia, Washington, you'll find uh, all sorts of uh, people who have in their homes uh, either authentic empire furniture or furniture that is built in the style of, of the first empire. And, uh, he, you know, he, his uh, interest in him lives on in that respect. 
you and I are interested in collecting uh, decorative arts items and other things, uh, snuff boxes, uh, bronzes, uh, medallions, that sort of thing. Well, there's a lot more of that sort of thing uh, on Napoleon uh, than, than you'll find on anyone else. Uh, Lord Wellington is said to have uh, commented before Waterloo that, that Napoleon's hat on the battlefield was worth 50,000 men. Well, I have a, a sort of a new saying to add to that, that Napoleon's name associated with any item is worth a lot of extra bucks on eBay. <laughs> that is that. Are there many people around the world that are interested in Napoleon? You've obviously spent a long time involved in the Napoleonic Alliance, it's in the society, etc. How big is this interest in Napoleon? Well, it's huge, uh, Cameron. It's huge. Uh, for starters, let's talk about books. I've mentioned the decorative arts, but the, the, the essence of learning about somebody is, is, is books and, and, of course, uh, podcasts. Uh, there's well over 300,000 books written about Napoleon. Now, now that's more than about any other person in history. Uh, that's more than about Muhammad, about Christ, about uh, Julius Caesar, about Alexander the Great, all of whom are several thousand years further back, a couple thousand years further back than, than Napoleon. Uh, it, it's more than about anyone else uh, ever in history, and, and that in itself is an amazing statistic. There are Napoleonic societies all over the world. You mentioned that I'm the executive vice president of the International Napoleonic Society, which is a scholarly organization. I'm president of the Napoleonic Alliance, uh, which uh, is a group of, of scholars and, and other people interested in Napoleon uh, here in the United States. In fact, the interest is so great in the United States, there's two organizations. The Napoleonic Society of America uh, is, is an organization similar to, to the Napoleonic Alliance. Uh, there the in other, Australia... The, that's the other the, NSA, right? That's correct. <laughs> uh, the, well, there's the International Napoleonic Society, and then the NA, the Napoleonic Alliance, and then the NSA, the Napoleonic Society of America. you got to know your acronyms. It gets confusing. <laughs> uh, there's the ANS, the Australian Napoleonic Society. There's also a Napoleonic Society, if you can believe it, in Great Britain, which has quite a few uh, members. <laughs> and... Uh, these, uh, you know, people are fascinated with Napoleon uh, everywhere you go. No question about it. And I guess mentioning Britain there um, leads me to comment on how my interest in Napoleon arose. I obviously grew up in Australia. I was educated in a Commonwealth country. And whilst I'm sure my high school history teachers didn't spend a lot of time on Napoleon, I certainly remember coming away from my high school education with the impression that Napoleon was a little dictator, a little Hitler, is the way that he's always you know, kind of compared. And then it was about, when I was in my early 20s, I happened to be in a bookstore somewhere in Melbourne, was looking for a biography on a famous person to, to read that I, you know, just try and buff up my historical knowledge, and saw Vincent Cronin's book on Napoleon, which I actually have still sitting beside me here. And, uh, Completely, you know, randomly picked it up, thought, yeah, I don't know anything about Napoleon, I should read this. And one of the first things that struck me was how different the picture was of Napoleon that Vincent Cronin painted in this book compared to what I had been taught growing up in a British Commonwealth country. It, it was nothing like the image that I had of him growing up. 
So, you know, it's said that the victors tell history or get to write history. Do you think that Napoleon has suffered from that? Well, in a sense he has, because certainly the, the, the British, uh, at the time of Napoleon and, and since have, have, have made some effort to promote a very negative image of Napoleon and, and some of his continental enemies, uh, did and perhaps to some extent still do the same kind of thing. <clears throat> but it also has to be said that Napoleon outfoxed them, uh, to a very large extent. He has written his own history. Uh, he started doing this from the very beginning by promoting, as I suggested, all of these images of himself uh, that, of course, are still around and indeed still on eBay or are still in, in, in my collection in my home and, and other collections. Uh, and when he was in exile on St. Helena, he wrote his history the way he thought he should be remembered, and that history has also stuck. And and as a result, the, the, the world really... To, to some extent has some, some real ambiguity in, in how the Napoleon is seen. We, we're all fascinated with, with some aspects of him. His, his rags to riches story, his, his rise to power, his fall from power, his rise again, his fall again. I mean, I always say Napoleon has love, sex, war, politics, power, and pathos. You know, and, and he was a genius on top of all that. So, so what's not to like? But we, we do have some ambiguity. Some people see him as a promoter of the great values of the American War of Independence and the French Revolution. Others see him as a power-hungry dictator. To, to most people, he was both brilliant and, and as uh, the French uh, writer Stendhal suggested, perhaps a little bit dangerous. Uh, he, he's often compared with Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, two other leaders uh, about whom there is some ambiguity as to how they are seen as well. But at, at the very least, he was the most important person of his age, an age, I, I might add, that was named after him. We talk about the Napoleonic era, Napoleonic epoch. He, he, he stood, if you'll forgive the, the almost a cliche now, he, he, he stood like a colossus uh, astride Europe and, and is often seen as, as, as ushering in the, the modern era in Europe. Yeah, he, he certainly defined his time, and, and a lot of people would argue has defined the course of not only Europe, but international affairs ever since then. And well, I guess sure, he, he changed the, the, I'm sorry, he changed the, the nature of, of France, uh, was a very progressive force in, in France's economy, uh, religious freedom, education, the law. But he, he also, he swept away the old feudal order in, in France and, and in the rest of Europe. Uh, he, he certainly is known for having revolutionized uh, uh, warfare, but he did, he did a whole lot more than that. And, and if I could, let me, let me deal with another issue, and this really gets to the, the comment you first made about the image you had of Napoleon uh, before you started looking at some of these other books. A lot of critics will, will con complain, if you will, that, that Napoleon was a dictator, uh, or, or at least an absolute ruler. I had a, I had a student ask me once, was Napoleon my favorite dictator? And I sort of cringed. <laughs> but you, you, you have to put things in context. Mm. France had been ruled for a long, long time by a series of absolute monarchs, the Louis, etc., who were under the influence of a jealous and a parasitic nobility and a corrupt clergy 
you know, France was in terrible shape because of its leadership or, or lack of leadership. And it was this combination that led to the French Revolution, which, despite its lofty goals and principles, quite frankly, was also incompetent and frequently corrupt. Now, Napoleon came along, and, and, and in these various episodes, we'll, we'll talk about how he came along. But ultimately, Napoleon brought stability and, and really an enlightened leadership to France. Uh, he instituted a rule that was based on merit. Now, sure, he was something of an absolute ruler, although he had, he had some democratic institutions that checked his power, or at least somewhat, and quite often, I might add, those institutions were more conservative, less progressive than he was. In the final analysis, Napoleon reflected what we today would call middle-class values, middle-class interests rather than the values and the interests of the aristocracy uh, or of the church. And look what happened when he was defeated. Did the, did the people or, or his enemies, who, who really determined these things, uh, put it in a, a democratic uh, republic in power? No. They reestablished an absolute monarchy under Louis XVIII, later Charles X, uh, an absolute monarchy that did its best to roll back the clock, and it really wasn't until King Louis Philippe came along that France began to see the reemergence of middle class values and interests that had once been championed by Napoleon. Mm. You know, I think one of the things that uh, continues to inspire me, uh, I mean, I have people say all the time, you've already read 100 books on Napoleon, why buy the 101st book? Why, and, and, <laughs> and as. Uh, well, so mainly. Mainly because the 101st book was written by me, right? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. No, but he, he is a, a, a subject of endless fascination, and I'm obviously pro-Napoleonic and, and, and admire what the man set out to do and, and admire the things that he actually did do. But even, I, you know, I read his books and there's, I can easily point out the things that I th- think he did wrong, he made mistakes, he shouldn't have done this, he should have turned left when he turned right... And so he's a an incredibly complex character. I think there's no way that you can paint him out to be the pure devil or pure angel. He, like the rest of us, was in, he was a complex human being with a lot of complex motivations. But he was really the first modern man in many ways. Uh, as you said, he came from sort of a, I guess, a middle class background. He came from minor nobility, uh, from the island of... Corsica, which had itself been the subject of territorial dispute for centuries, but at that time happened to be uh, a, a recent member of the French Empire. And he had to basically struggle for everything that he got in those early years. But because of that, he sort of became a man who was really... He bootstrapped himself all the way, and he had a ferocious intelligence, had ferocious willpower, didn't let anything get in his road... But at the same time, he was an incredible workaholic. Um, you know, he even when he was emperor, self-proclaimed emperor, with maybe Senate approval, but basically self-proclaimed emperor of France, controlling the vast majority of Europe, he still had this prodigious appetite for work. He was not a guy who ever rested on his laurels. And then you read stories about, you know, during the first abdication where he gets sent to Elba, which you would think would be a very depressing event for a man who had just ruled all of Europe to get sent to a little island in the Mediterranean. What does he do? 
He starts reorganising the place. He gets straight to work and starts reorganising the economy and reorganising the legal system and reorganising the education system. And, you know, that's an incredibly inspiring kind of a personality for somebody like me. He was a guy who didn't take anything lying down. Well, that's exactly right, and 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 you you've said much of what I would have said when we talked about Elba and and so on. He he didn't know how to stop working. Now, maybe toward the very very end, he 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 became a bit more lethargic than he was when he was younger, uh, and and don't we all? Uh, but but even on Saint Helena and his final exile, uh, for at least part of the time, he was really really actively trying to. To promote his legend, if you will, and to to uh, see to it that his place in history was uh, secured, uh, and all through his his career, uh, I, I tell the story uh, about uh, the, uh, the how brilliant he was. You talk about him being a a, a workaholic. He 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 was a a genius with with a great eye for detail. He he always knew just what should be, for example in any given transport wagon or campaign, and what was being spent deep in the budget. He had an eye for detail. Uh, my favorite story is he could dictate five different letters to five different secretaries at once. He would dictate a, a, a paragraph to number one, and then a paragraph of a new unrelated letter to secretary number two, saying to number three, number four, number five, and by the time he got back to number one for the for what had been let's say the second paragraph of that letter, that secretary had better be caught up. Now you and I might say, well, please read back to me what I dictated to you. He wouldn't. He knew exactly what it was, and he would just continue the letter and go through until he was done. And he would do this for hours sometimes. Reminds me of probably my favourite quote about Napoleon from Chateaubriand, who said he was the mightiest, mightiest breath of life which ever animated human clay. Yes, and that was from a very conservative uh, person who didn't necessarily like everything Napoleon did. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, one of my other favorite stories about his uh, ability for concentrating and on the details, I can't remember which campaign it was, uh, and I can't even remember the details of the events, but I remember he was on a campaign at some stage early on in his career. I think he may have still been first consul, or he may have been, it may have been in the early days of the empire. He was on a campaign somewhere a long, long way away from Paris, and he was dictating a letter to the gentleman who was in charge of the Louvre at the time, saying that he had heard that it opened 15 minutes late uh, previously, in the, you know, within the last week, and that this was absolutely not acceptable, that the people of Paris demanded that you know, the, their knowledge and their uh, experience of the arts should be available on time. And he, you know, he's getting involved in those sorts of details when he's got you know, probably 100,000, 200,000 troops under his command in a foreign country. He had an amazing ability to just manage the detail. I guess we would have, you know, today in a modern corporation, he'd probably be the sort of boss that I would have hated. He'd be a spreadsheet jockey, but... Uh, he, he, well, com he combined, combined, combined. He was able to combine that level of detail with the ability to inspire hundreds of thousands of <laughs> troops to go into battle. You know. your, your comment about not not wanting to work for him is probably true. There's a there's a wonderful uh, a story that Stendhal relates uh, when Stendhal was working in the bureaucracy. Uh, for uh, Count Daru, uh, who was in turn working directly for Napoleon, he he writes uh, at one point uh, 
that he, Stendhal, lived in fear of Daru, who in turn lived in fear of Napoleon, because Napoleon was such an exacting uh, taskmaster uh, and and really knew every detail. You you just couldn't put something over on Napoleon. He he always understood what was going on, and he was always going to let you know if he thought you were uh, doing something that was inappropriate. Uh, well, for one thing, he never slept. Uh, he was a workaholic who who rarely slept. Obviously, he he slept sometimes, but he would catch little cat naps. He 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 could sleep on his horse. Uh, his valet and his secretaries were always close at hand, uh, all, day and night, because he might wake up in the middle of the night and decide he wanted to dictate letters or he wanted to go over some maps or he wanted to do something else. And by golly, his staff had better be prepared to do that. He was a maybe he was the first twenty four seven guy. I don't know. <laughs> I often wonder what he would have been able to do if he had had access to the kinds of technology that we have today. If he, had, oh heaven, you know, if, if Marshall Ney had actually had a mobile phone, so he could have called him and told him what to do at Waterloo. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Although Napoleon was not always as as interested in modern technology as you as you might think. Uh, he would be. For example, in the campaign in Egypt, and we may mention this again uh, when we talk about that, but the campaign in Egypt when he was uh, undergoing the siege of Acre, uh, had he used the observation balloons, which were pretty newfangled uh, in those days, he would have seen, for example, that there was a double wall that his people were trying to penetrate, which was obviously much more difficult uh, an operation, and he would have probably used different tactics and then maybe even just thought better of the whole deal. But because he didn't use those balloons, even though they were there, his, his army had them, uh, he didn't know, and, and the, the siege of Acre was, was less than an overwhelming success, to say the least. Now, there are some things that I think people should know about Napoleon. Um, I mentioned before that he was Corsican, which meant that he grew up really with Italian as his first language. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Because the Genoese had controlled Corsica before the French captured it around about the time of his birth. That's correct. Uh, it was about actually a hundred years before had had Napoleon, or rather a year before, excuse me, had Napoleon uh, been born a little earlier, he would have been Italian, and and uh, it would be very interesting to imagine what kind of career he would have uh, he he would have had. But this Corsican business is actually much more important than than you might think. Uh, for example, it's much more difficult for him to to get into school. He has to show uh, that he's a noble, and we'll talk about this, I suspect, in the next episode. But but he is able to to uh, prove that he's a noble, and therefore is uh, qualifies for uh, uh, royal scholarships. So he goes to military schools in France, uh, where he is looked down on. And he really has to be something of a loner. He has a few friends, but 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 most of the nobility there is of the true quote unquote French nobility, and they think very little of the the Corsicans, who they see as uh, just this uh, side of being barbarians. Uh, and and that that really does influence the way he develops. And he doesn't speak French very well. He doesn't write it very well. In, in fact, throughout the rest of his life, he, his written French is quite often criticized, isn't it? That's correct. His French was particularly bad, especially in the earlier years. 
uh, after all, Italian was his uh, language, and 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 he spoke also with a very very heavy Corsican accent. And and the French then and now pride themselves uh, on the, the having the proper accent for their language. And Napoleon had anything but the proper accent uh, for French. And uh, the rather cruel students uh, certainly let him know that. And you and I have both been to Ajaxio in Corsica, where he was born, and you, you get a sense, even today, 200 years later, going and looking at this place, this was an incredibly rugged island home. This was a, a fairly foreboding place that had a very interesting and um, volatile political history. Well, it certainly did. In fact, Napoleon sort of cut his teeth on the the uh, independence movement that was going on. Napoleon's father, uh, Carlo, was involved uh, in in that movement. Uh, Napoleon uh, learned early on the the horrors of what could amount to a civil war, and and he also uh, uh, learned the 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 value of loyalty, the value of family, uh, which uh, values sustained with him all of his life. And one of the other things that I feel a lot of people don't know about Napoleon is the fact that he rarely, if ever, broke a peace treaty. He's often displayed as being a warmonger who was incredibly ambitious and wanted to take over all of Europe. But in fact, when I read through these books, I find that he spent his entire career in leadership as first consul and as emperor signing peace treaties with the rest of the countries in Europe, only to have those countries break the peace treaty a year down the track. Now, quite often when he knew that they were breaking the treaty and that they had troops lining up on the borders, he would strike a preemptive attack. But there was always, you know, mounting evidence that this country had broken the peace treaty that they'd signed with him not six or 12 months previously. So why does well, he have well, this reputation as being a warmonger? That, that, first of all, you're absolutely correct. Uh, he, he did not break peace treaties, and that's a very, very um, important point. We call them often the Napoleonic Wars, but they are, are more correctly called the Wars of the Coalitions, the Coalitions uh, Against France. Uh, they were really about other nations in Europe trying to overthrow First, the French Revolution, starting uh, in the 90s, and, and then Napoleon. From 1792 to 1815, there were seven coalitions against France, uh, and, and he, until the very end, defeated them all. And, and perhaps this answers your question, why does he have the image of, of being the warmonger? Because he always won, and in winning, he gained territory, or he, he gained allies, uh, and, and perhaps sometimes he tried to gain more than he should have, uh, either politically or certainly from, from an image standpoint. Uh, and, of course, we, we tend to focus on negative things. For example, his, his incursion into uh, Spain, his incursion into uh, Russia, both of which worked out very poorly, both of which, if you look at them superficially, may have seemed like, well, here's France invading another country. Uh, for no reason, but of course if you read your history you know there were very good reasons, especially uh, in the case of Russia, which is an example of what you just suggested, where it was only a question of does, does he wait for the Tsar to invade him, or does he invade the Tsar, because armies were being massed on, on both sides. Uh, but uh, image notwithstanding, 
and and not to to suggest that Napoleon did not sometimes make a mistake and did not overreach or could not perhaps have negotiated a peace treaty that that might have been easier for the other side to keep. But all that notwithstanding, the fact of the matter is that uh, almost without exception, uh, the wars uh, that we call Napoleonic wars were actually wars of coalitions against Napoleon. And I think it's important to point out that, as you said, these battles have been going on since 1792, which was before Napoleon uh, you know, had uh, even joined the army in France. He was still working his way up through military school. So it's not like he got involved in politics in France and all of a sudden they were at war with Europe. He inherited these wars and, and quite often finished them. That's correct. The, the European powers who were, after all, an assortment of absolute rulers to one extent or another. You've got the, the king of England, you've got the, the, the emperor of Austria, the king of Spain, the czar of Russia, and, and some others, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, these folks were horrified at the notion that people could determine their own government, could actually overthrow a king and establish a republic, or establish any other kind of government for that matter. And they were determined to make an example of France, particularly after uh, King Louis XVI was executed. Uh, they were determined to bring back the old order. And if you don't believe me, just look to see what happens at the end, at 1814 and then again in 1815. They don't ask the French to determine their own government. They don't allow Napoleon's son to, to accede to the throne. Uh, they throw out not only the the empire of Napoleon, but they throw out any chance of a republic, of a democracy of some kind, and they reestablish the Bourbon control under Louis the Eighteenth. They force the French to turn back the clock and go back to the days of the Bourbon kings. Now, of course, some Frenchmen like that, but the overwhelming majority of Frenchmen would have much preferred some other alternative. They may have been tired of Napoleon. They may have said, okay, we can't keep him anymore because he's, he's been defeated and, and the, our enemies are not going to tolerate him still in power. But they could have taken somebody else, established some other type of government, and the Allies would not allow it. Mm. Uh, now, in terms of his conduct on the battlefield, he was—he really did, in many, many ways, revolutionise warfare. I guess the, the the thing that took everybody so, by surprise when he finally got a military command in France was the fact that he kind of broke all of the rules, didn't he? I mean, warfare at the the last part of the 18th century was still filled with many traditional forms of battle where armies would take months to traverse the landscape and come together on a battlefield, and it was all quite formal, whereas Napoleon would do a forced march for two days and be on your back doorstep before you even knew what hit you, and then he'd break up your army, defeat one flank, then turn on the other flank, and quite often he would uh, defeat his enemies before they even knew what had hit them. What was the impact of that on warfare in Europe? Well, he he revolutionized warfare, not necessarily by using 
ideas or techniques that were totally his, but by learning the techniques he had been taught and observing it in others and mastering their use and then combining them properly, and also uh, by reorganizing the military structure in such a way as to make his type of warfare possible. And and I don't know if you want to talk about the details of that now or perhaps in a, in a, in a future program, but the impact of that was that his enemies, even when they had numerical superiority, were simply for the first uh, number of years of Napoleon's reign unable to successfully uh, compete with Napoleon. Uh, they were uh, fighting uh, an old type of warfare, as you say, sort of stodgy, plotting, uh, very heavily centralized control, uh, one large army as opposed to a number of smaller independent units like Napoleon used. Uh, Napoleon was very good at quick movements, uh, sometimes, uh, as in 1805, very secretive movements. He knew uh, well the appropriate use of artillery, especially the very fast mobile uh, uh, horse artillery uh, that, that he learned about uh, early on in his uh, his early military career, uh, and and he, he takes all these things and and he really just uh, literally, if you will forgive me, blows the enemy away. Uh, they do, they don't really know how to react to this new kind of warfare. And if you want to figure out why Napoleon ultimately loses, it's because they, to a large extent, eventually are able to learn uh, his tactics and use his tactics and therefore deprive him of the advantage. And now their numerical superiority uh, comes to play and, uh, and, and they're able to defeat him. One of the other things that I think most people don't know is the role that he perhaps indirectly played in our current modern understanding of ancient Egyptian history. Because when he uh, as uh, was general of the army of Egypt and took a bunch of scientists with him and it was while he was on campaign in Egypt that they discovered the Rosetta Stone. Well, sure. Uh, when you think about Napoleon's legacy to the world, his Egyptian campaign, which militarily was not real successful, uh, is really one of his greatest legacies. He is, in many ways, the founder of modern Egyptology. Uh, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone by uh, some of his uh, soldiers is the, the most eye-catching aspect of this, but in reality, uh, there was a lot more to the establishment of modern Egyptology, the understanding of ancient Egypt, than, than just the Rosetta Stone. Uh, he brought artists and cartographers uh, and uh, scientists, all sorts of other uh, people with him who studied and sketched, drew, painted, uh, made temple rubbings of the hieroglyphics, everything you could imagine, so that for years to come, scholars in France and elsewhere would have a huge uh, amount of material to study, all of which was made even more exciting when the uh, 20-some years later when the Rosetta Stone, in fact, was, was finally deciphered. Uh, and they produced a huge book, uh, actually, uh, uh, I think, 21-volume book, a big oversized folio thing, of drawings of 
the the, the magnificent uh, structures that they found in Egypt. So again, we'll probably talk in greater detail about this later, but but certainly the Egyptian campaign uh, is one of those things that captures the imagination and that causes him to be so often compared with Alexander the Great who did exactly the same thing in his campaign against Persia. He also brought scientists, photographers, and so on, and was sending samples of various uh, plants and animals back to uh, Aristotle and so on. So the two, uh, among other things, share that, that interest in making a campaign an educational opportunity as well as a military uh, opportunity. Napoleon was a prodigious reader. I know that he had a, a specially constructed library of miniature versions, like in, literally in size, miniature versions of like a thousand books that he would take on campaign with him. And I, I believe he often said that if you know he hadn't have taken on a military career, that he thought he would like to have been a mathematician or some other sort of scientist. Well, he would have, he, he was brilliant. He would have been good at anything he did. He, he, he might very well, uh, have become a lawyer, uh, for example. Uh, his father had, had been a lawyer and, and you can imagine Napoleon would have been a spectacular, uh, lawyer. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, it's, it's sort of ironic speaking of the law. We think of Napoleon as a, as, as a master of warfare, which of course he was. But Napoleon considered his greatest legacy, not to be all his battles that he won, which he said those battles can be all wiped out by Waterloo, his last great defeat. But his greatest legacy, he felt, was his work on the civil code of France, reorganizing the legal structure of France, particularly the civil legal structure, uh, into a body of law known uh, ultimately as the Code Napoleon, and a body of law which is still the the basis of civil law in France and all former French colonies and Louisiana and the United States today. So here's this great military genius. When you ask him, what's your greatest legacy? It's my work in the law. I find that fascinating. Yeah, that says a lot. Now, some of the things that people often ask me when they discover that I have an interest in Napoleon. I thought I'd get your perspective on these. Probably the first question is always, how short was he? <laughs> if there's, and forgive me laughing, but of course everybody, you know, gets, gets that question. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's one of those great myths about Napoleon that just are, are totally fraudulent. Uh, he was not short. Uh, he was probably around five, uh, six, maybe five, seven in, in, in modern measurements. Uh, and, and that's, uh, was about average, uh, height for a Frenchman of the uh, 18th and early 19th century. There's a variety of reasons why he has an image of being short. Uh, the French foot and the British uh, foot were a different size. Uh, people in, in the 20th century would look at his uniforms and, and see that they were small, but of course they, you know, fabric shrinks over the years. Uh, I've got a lot of clothes in my closet that, that have shrunk. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, you have a variety of reasons and some descriptions of him as, you know, the little corporal and so forth and so on. He was very, very slender, almost sickly in some of his early years. Uh, 
and he was short by today's standards, the average height today in, in the Western world at least, Australia, the United States, Western Europe would probably uh, be around five foot ten. So he was uh, three, maybe four inches shorter, and today that would be short. But in his day, no, he, he was about average. And he was also known as the Little Corporal, I think, because he was very young when he took command of the armies, wasn't he? He was in his early 20s uh, when most of the generals were you know, older gentlemen that have gone up through the ranks and had come out of the uh, minor nobility. And yet well, that's this guy exactly was right. very young. That's exactly right. And when we talk uh, about the, the campaign in Italy, the first campaign in Italy, I'll tell you a little story about, about how that uh, affected his, his command situation or, or potentially affected it. Uh, but, but, you know, that's just one of those, those interesting little side stories about Napoleon that, that people have, the, the image of Napoleon as, as a short fellow. It goes hand-in-hand, hand really, with the other sort of image that we have of Napoleon as this person who walked around with his hand stuck inside his jacket. <laughs> uh, a lot of paintings show him that way, and, of course, advertising uh, shows him that way today, and a lot of the modern images of him are that. I even saw a, a poster for Starbucks, which has his hand inside his jacket, and he's holding a little demitasse of coffee. Uh, the fact of the matter is he, he, he never walked around with his hand like that, at least not as far as I know. I suppose it's possible he did that on one or two occasions, but, but that was in fact a popular pose for uh, portraits uh, uh, by painters. Uh, painters, I have a theory that says painters you know, are, are like anyone else. They'll cut corners if they can. Well, you stick a guy's hand inside his jacket. You don't have to paint the fingers uh, or even the whole hand at all. And 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 hands and fingers are, are, are more difficult. There's more detail. There's question of perspective. And perhaps someone decided that it looked distinguished. Uh, I've seen lots of people from 18th century paintings uh, with that pose that were painted before Napoleon. George Washington, for example, first president of the United States, uh, who was a contemporary of Napoleon, but was in power before Napoleon was. And there's, there's paintings of him with that pose that were painted prior to any similar painting of Napoleon. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting look and, you know, we were probably stuck with it as an image of Napoleon. But he did not, in fact, walk around with his hand inside his uh, jacket. Did he ever say, not tonight, Josephine? <laughs> well, <laughs> well it's, 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 I don't know about that, uh, that he said not tonight. In fact, knowing what I know of their relationship, maybe she would have been the one to say not tonight. We, we do know that, that, that he was more passionate than Josephine. We, we know that from... His early letters, for example, when he's in Italy, he's coming home and, and he writes to Josephine, I will be home soon. Do not bathe. You know, which has obvious, uh, sexual overtones. Uh, some of his very early letters were, were pretty hot stuff. And in fact, Josephine was a little bit embarrassed about them and, and didn't really know quite what to make of all of them. Uh, they had ultimately a, a reasonably passionate uh, love life, I think, but uh, uh, it's not likely he said not tonight. However, I will tell you a, a funny story, if you'll permit me. 
having to do with his wedding night. Now, I don't think our, our listeners are going to be too amazed to discover that there are certain expectations for one's wedding night as to the evening's activities. And, and uh, Napoleon and Josephine were retiring uh, to their bed uh, for uh, those activities, and Napoleon discovered, much to his uh, amazement and horror, that he was going to have to share his, his uh, wedding night bed with another male. Now, this would alarm most of us. In this case, however, the male was Josephine's small dog, Fortune. And Fortune didn't take kindly to sharing the bed with Napoleon. And so while they were involved in those activities and, shall we say, uh, about to culminate same, uh, Fortune expressed his opinion on the matter by biting Napoleon in the leg. (laughs) Now, this went over real well. Uh, you can imagine that it's fortunate, uh, so to speak, that the dog is, was still alive after that. On the other hand, you don't want to start your, your marriage off killing your new wife's dog, so he just sort of grinned and bore it, but I suspect that that brought a, a crashing halt to the evening's activities. It's also probably not a good omen to kill a dog called Fortune. You don't want to be killing Fortune. It's not going to bode well for no. the next campaign, is it, no. really? No, you certainly, you certainly don't. And, and, and of course, ironically, whatever else we may say about Josephine, and again, in a future program, I suspect we'll talk at great length about her, but many people came to see Josephine as Napoleon's fortune, as his lucky, uh, talisman, as his lucky star, and, and, uh, a relationship that started off, uh, with a little bit of an edge to it, not just a dog story, but clearly Napoleon was more passionate about things than, than Josephine was turned into one of those great love stories, a, a real Romeo and, and Juliet kind of thing. And, and when you think of Napoleon, you, you, you think of Napoleon and Josephine. Napoleon had a, a, a mistress with whom he was greatly in love with, a Polish uh, mistress. And, of course, he had a second wife, uh, Marie-Louise of Austria. Uh, but when most people think of Napoleon, uh, they, they match him up with Napoleon and Josephine. And... Uh, I suspect that, that that's the way Napoleon would actually have liked it. Now, one of the other things that people will often ask me these days is whether or not he was poisoned. Now, it seems to me that at least once a year over the last five or six years, there's been another report come out that says we have conclusive evidence that he was not, in fact, poisoned. Then the next year there'll be another article coming out saying we now have conclusive evidence that he was poisoned, and then backwards and forwards. Can you give us your perspective on the poisoning incident? Well, there's there's pretty good evidence that he was, based on analysis of his hair, uh, which has been found to contain arsenic, and to contain arsenic in, in segments, which would eliminate... Uh, ideas that, well, maybe he got arsenic from uh, the, the, the wallpaper, which was a, a, a common uh, argument uh, early on in the, in the discussion. Uh, so there, there's evidence that he was intaking arsenic in, in a segmented fashion. There's some evidence that those segments, because you can really sort of time the, 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 uh, the thing when you know when the hair was cut and you know how hair how fast hair grows, you can go back and you can figure out about when the arsenic was being administered one way or the other. 
and 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 there's some indication that the arsenic corresponds with with some of his various ailments from time to time, uh, but not everybody is convinced. Uh, there's a, a ferocious debate among scholars. Uh, many of the French scholars are particularly unhappy with the theory, at least in part because the the most likely culprit seems to be the Comte de Montalon, who was a French noble. Uh, and there's that debate is going to continue. For a long time, I, I must say that my 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 good friend and the president of the International Napoleonic Society, Ben Weider, ha, has led the the way in providing evidence that he was poisoned. Ben is convinced that he was poisoned. Many people believe that Ben is definitely onto something, and I fall in that category. I think he's onto something. To say absolute proof on either side, well, absolute proof is. If you will forgive me, pretty absolute and therefore pretty pretty difficult. I suppose if we exhumed the body and did some DNA testing, we might have a better idea. But don't hold your breath for that to happen. Uh, but if I had to cast my vote, uh, then yeah, I would I would say that, that, that he was likely to have been poisoned. Okay. What are, what are some other issues that you think, just as we wrap up in the last few minutes of the show, that um, people should know about Napoleon or Questions that you get or mistakes that people make. Well, I, I, and, and this this could go for on for hours, of course. But one one that really I do want to make mention of and, and sort of eliminate right away. Uh, every now and then, some folks will will compare him to Hitler, uh, and that really makes my blood boil. I, I've got to tell you that that's one of the things that I'll get emotional about. <laughs> you know, Napoleon was running around; he was freeing the Jews. Hitler was was killing them. Napoleon was promoting freedom. Uh, Hitler was was squashing freedom. Uh, only very very superficial comparisons uh, are appropriate. I mean, okay, fine. They were they were both rulers of important countries. They both invaded Russia and lived to forget it. Uh, Napoleon was generally a progressive force in history, and and Hitler was one of history's worst monsters. Uh, and to even people I know who don't think very much of Hitler will will tell me, well, no, that's that's a pretty poor comparison. But still, you get some people who will come up with that. And if you ever actually look at it, actually analyze it, you know, that's that's just totally bogus. So I, you know, well, I'll try to dispense with that one once and for all, and hopefully it won't come up again. I, I'm glad you feel that way because I, I, it's one of the very few subjects that I could get into a fist fight about. <laughs> yeah, now, but you won't you won't have to get in a fist fight with me. We'll team up against somebody else. <laughs> and as we were saying before, I mean, uh, you know, Hitler invaded several countries. Uh, Napoleon never broke a peace treaty or invaded a country unless he knew that they were about to attack him, and he didn't have to, you know, fake the burning down of the Reichstag to build evidence for that. That's correct. I mean, you, you can certainly find fault with Napoleon, and you know, I, I have a reputation, I'm sure, as someone who, who like you, is pro-Napoleon, feels that Napoleon is a positive force. But that does not mean that Napoleon didn't make mistakes. That does not mean that that I think we should have a Napoleon ruling Australia or ruling the United States or the UK today. Times are different. Two hundred years have gone by. Our concept of individual freedom and democracy are different. And I guess there's another thing that, that I think people always need to be careful to do. 
you have to judge people in the context of their times. Was Napoleon a super liberal by today's time? No, of course he wasn't. He may get criticized sometimes for not being as much of a feminist, as much as pro-women's rights as people are today. Well, that's true. But for his day, he was pretty doggone good on that issue and on lots and lots of other issues as well. If you judge Napoleon by the period in which he lived, the period of the Louis and the Charles X and the, the emperors and czars and so on, Napoleon comes off really very, very well. Okay, final points. Your favorite anecdote or event or story of Napoleon. There's so many good ones to pick. I know this is saying, asking you like for your favorite movie of all time, but give me, give me one of the top anecdotes. Well, uh, like you say, we, we could spend a lot of time on this. Uh, I know from discussions with you that, that, that we both are, are fascinated by the whole story of, of, of the hundred days and then we'll cover that in detail. And we'll cover this one in detail too, but I guess if I had to think of something that symbolizes Napoleon's brilliance and his ability to react uh, in such a way as to just totally uh, befuddle his enemies, it has to be the Austerlitz campaign of 1805. And again, we'll probably talk about it in detail more later, but here he is in 1805. He's on the coast of the English Channel uh, hoping to invade Great Britain, which has once again formed a coalition uh, against uh, Napoleon, against France, uh, had just broken, in line with what you're saying, the, the Peace of Amiens, uh, which had lasted a year or so and, and was really the, the greatest hope for peace during this whole time period. Uh, and he's thinking about uh, invading uh, England. Easier said than done, obviously, with the channel there. And he gets word that Russia and Austria have teamed up uh, with uh, uh, Great Britain and are moving against him in Central Europe. So he moves an entire army, 210,000 men. Now, these aren't in strikers or, or in Huey helicopters, you know, uh, flying at, at hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, these guys are walking. And there's 200 plus thousand of them with, with the baggage trains and the artillery and everything. It takes time to move an army like this. And he moved them in secret from the coast deep into the, uh, into what we now call Germany, uh, by the city of Ulm. And he did it by, he left a small force back at, at the coast to deceive people. He issued false press releases. He forbade any press coverage of his moves. And he completely fooled the enemy. He showed up unannounced at Ulm and defeated the, the unfortunate General Mack, took the Austrian capital of Vienna pretty much without firing a shot a little later, and then he defeats the Austrians and Russians at Austerlitz on the 2nd of December. And even there, he defeats them in large part by using psychological tactics, psychological uh, maneuvers uh, that just totally bamboozle them. It was his greatest victory, and it was his the, the high water mark of his military career. It is a great episode, and as you said before, the beginning of the hundred days, his return from Elba, is always one of my favourite stories. For people who don't know this background behind this, he had abdicated um, from France. They'd been put in exile in Elba, and then uh, events occurred that enabled him to return. So he jumped on a boat 
in the middle of the night when uh, the, his British captors weren't really watching and turns up on the coast of France and starts m- with about a thousand men and starts marching to Paris and basically marches all the way to Paris and takes the capital back. Uh, King Louis XVIII, was it the 18th who was in power then? Yeah. Louis XVIII basically runs away. Napoleon retakes Paris without firing a single shot. And there's a, you know, a terrific story where Louis sends... Was it uh, Ney? Marshal Ney that he sent out to recapture him, I think? Well, he, he sends uh, several, but the story you're probably talking about is Marshal Ney who was going to bring him back in an iron cage. That's right. And basically there's a confrontation between Napoleon's small troop of men that are following him and Ney with an entire division. And Ney... Commands his men to open fire on the, this uh, traitor, this imposter who's turned up, and Napoleon basically, and according to legend, bears his chest and says, "If any of you would shoot upon your emperor, you know where I am." And basically, all of the men lay down their guns, and he, he forgives Ney, and they turn around and they all march towards Paris. But then there's this uh, the, the great story which indicates the change of sentiment inside of France is illustrated in a French newspaper that published the following calendar gathered from the Royalist Press. It says, these were sort of the headlines of the day during this period. On February 25th, the headline was, The Exterminator has signed a treaty offensive and defensive. It is not known with whom. On February 26th, it reads, The Corsican has left the island of Elba. March 1st, Bonaparte has debarked at Cannes with 1,100 men. March 7th, General Bonaparte has taken possession of Grenoble. March 10th, Napoleon has entered Lyon. March 19th, the Emperor reached Fontainebleau today. March 19th, His Imperial Majesty is expected at the Tuileries tomorrow, the anniversary of the birth of the King of Rome. Two days before the flight of the Bourbon, the following notice appeared on the doors of the Tuileries. The Emperor begs the King to send him no more soldiers. He has enough. Yes, yes. I, I think that, that 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 one actually was a little bit earlier. And there's others. The the the, the you know he's referred to as the usurper, the ogre, uh, uh, and, and some uh, some other uh, announcements like this. And and what's fascinating about that is that as you as you suggest here, the closer he gets to Paris, the the nicer the press is treating him. He he starts off the ogre, the usurper, and so forth. And pretty soon he's Bonaparte and the general, and then finally his imperial majesty will address his loyal subjects tomorrow. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating story. You're absolutely right. Uh, you will forgive me, I hope, if I if I correct you on, on, on one detail on, sure. on what you talk about with Ney. It was not actually Ney that was at Laffrey outside of Grenoble uh, uh. Where, where, where your story was. He met up with Ney a little bit later, and by then Ney had figured out that that he was uh, uh, on the wrong side if he was with the king, and he actually switched uh, on his own, much to the relief of of uh, Napoleon. Uh, but the story you tell, other than the Ney, and Ney gets put in there sometimes by mistake, but but the story you tell is absolutely the icon of the Hundred Days, where the soldiers are are told to fire. And Napoleon, you know, stands in front of them, and I've stood on the very spot where he did this, and, and he opens up his vest, as you say, and says, Soldiers of the 5th, the 5th Regiment, uh, do you recognize me? I am your emperor. If there is anyone who would like to shoot me, me voila, here I am. And there's this awkward moment of silence, and the captain yells out, Fire! 
and there's more silence, and then somebody cries out, Vive l'Empereur, you know, long live the Emperor, and that's it. You know, they all go over to his side, and and uh, that that's the end of that story. And if, yeah, I agree with you completely. It is an absolutely fascinating episode, and we'll we'll talk in greater detail about that later on, including whether or not it was a good thing to do, why it didn't work, uh, but it led to the Battle of Waterloo, and this is the thing that you and I will doubtless agree on as we close. I've mentioned the Battle of Austerlitz, which was Napoleon's greatest victory. Waterloo, of course, was his greatest defeat. And yet, what's he always known for? He's known for the Battle of Waterloo and not the Battle of Austerlitz, and that's a doggone shame. <laughs> And yet, and obviously we will cover this in a lot of detail, but when you read the history of the Battle of Waterloo, even despite all of the things he had going against him at the time, and you know all of the forces that he had aligned against him, and the traitors that betrayed him, and messages that, and commands that weren't carried out, etc., etc., he still almost won the day. It Absolutely. Was, it was like a last-minute event. He had the British, he had Lord Wellington pretty much beaten, and it was, yes. you know, the arrival of some backup troops that he thought you know, he'd given commands to have these guys kept away from the main battlefield while he took care of the British. Blucher and the Prussians turned up at the last minute and uh, won the day. But, you know, and even, people don't even appreciate that, but there you go. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, he had sent Marshal, uh, well, General Grouchy to, to go uh, and... Uh, uh, keep the sword in the back of the Prussians to keep the Prussians away. Grouchy failed in his uh, assignment, and he had 33,000 men, about a third of Napoleon's army. Uh, and uh, when the Prussians showed up, that was the end of it. But what's fascinating about history, Cameron, uh, and what you and I, I I'm, I'm sure we both do and, and many of our listeners do, is to, to fantasize, if you will, about the what-ifs. What if Darlion, for example, two days earlier had stayed with, with Ney at Quatre Bras or, or stayed with Napoleon at Lignier and made a difference in either one of those uh, battles? You know, what if it hadn't rained so hard? What if Napoleon had said, the heck with the rain, we're going to start the battle at 8 o'clock in the morning instead of 11, uh, thus giving Blucher three more hours to, to arrive on the scene, and so on. What if Ney had not made his famous cavalry charge against the British squares, but without infantry support? And, you know, you can go on and on and on. There are so many what-ifs. And when we talk about Waterloo, uh, which will be one of our last episodes, I'm, I'm sure we will talk about some of the things that happened that had they gone... Differently, had even just one thing gone differently, it would be exactly as you say. Uh, he, he, instead of just barely losing, he would have won. And and Wellington is is supposed to have said it was the the nearest run thing he'd ever seen. Uh, in other words, it was a very close call. Wellington knew it, Blucher knew it, Napoleon knew it, and I think most historians know it. And now our listeners know it. <laughs> David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, getting through 70 minutes of the first episode, and this was just the uh, teaser intro to the series. So, if <laughs> Well, no one ever accused me of just saying a few words about something. <laughs> well, and when it comes to Napoleon, it's impossible to say just a few words. There's so much there, and that's why we're going to fill those 15 episodes. 
And, you know, if, if I'm prepared to go over time on any show, it's going to be a show where you and I get to geek out about Napoleon. So thank you again for the first episode. I hope the listeners enjoyed it, and we'll put out Series 2 probably sometime in the next... Uh, episode 2 sometime in the next 30 days. So subscribe via RSS or come back to the website, and we'll get stuck into the beginnings of Napoleon's life and career. Thank you, David. Well, it was... It was it was my pleasure. I, I'll I'll throw in one uh, gratuitous plug here. If the readers want to go out and pick up a copy of Napoleon for Dummies, they'll prepare them for the next episode. Good idea. So they'll know a little bit more about what we're talking about. Amazon.com, Napoleon for Dummies by J. David Markham. Thank you, David. Thank you. Real power can't be given. It must be taken.